Who is Joko Beck? Donna, you go. <laughs> okay, I'll say a word about Joko Beck. Um, Joko Beck uh, was a, a Zen Buddhist teacher um, who, who died, I guess, uh, in the late 1990s or something like that. Um, and uh, she was trained uh, quite traditionally um, at the San Francisco Zen Center. And, um, and then she sort of uh, created a, a new version of uh, the traditional practice and uh, added a psychological element to it. Um, though it's still quite uh, quite based in traditional Zen Buddhism, there there's a psychological aspect to it, and um, uh, 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 let's see, all of us uh, here, uh, um, uh, Sanshank, uh, uh, practice with a, a teacher, um, Peg Syverson, and Joko Beck was her her teacher. And what else? Can anybody else think of something else that needs to be said about Joko Beck? Well, Joko was with the Los Angeles Zen Center and then the San Diego, not, not San Francisco. <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry. Um, that she, once she was a teacher on her own, she really tossed out almost all of the forms that we tend to think of as part of traditional Zen practice. Um, she thought, she sort of laughed at Peg for Peg going ahead and, you know, getting um, transmission and, you know, you know, doing priest ordination, all of that. Um, but, you know, she certainly didn't say she couldn't do it, but um, she really, you know, it just wasn't important to uh, Joko, she'd done it. And I guess she felt that it, it was of limited value, so. Yeah, I'm going to share now the book. So we read one or two paragraphs, depending on the length of the paragraphs at a time, and we go in alphabetical order and who's first, Donna? Donna. Cody. Page oh, yeah, uh, Cody, of course. <laughs> Cody. And we're on page 201. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. Far from shore. One does not discover new lands without consenting to lose sight. For a very long time of the shore. Andre uh, Guy, the counterfeiters. Going to new lands sounds wonderful, but the last thing we want is to lose sight of the shore. The shore is life as we've come to know it. The troubling and painful yet familiar life of our core belief. To practice is to lose sight of the shore and spend a lot of time at sea. Initially, we consent to leaving our shore because we want to get, these, get to these new lands we've heard about. We no longer quite believe in the shore we've always lived on, 
but we're not able to see the new shore either. <clears throat> we're just at sea and we feel disturbed because we're unanchored. So we focus on thinking about how we're on our way to somewhere wonderful. Over time, we realize that we don't know where we're going. We're just lost at sea. We feel seasick. We're sick of practice and sick of feeling so much. We can't go back to the old shore again. We know too much to do that, but we don't know where we're going. Drifting at sea. When we're in this in-between place, which is really where we spend the majority of our practice, we're working with fear. It's hard not to have certainty. We don't have the life that, whether we like, liked it or not, was familiar with misery. And we don't have the new land, or more accurately, we think we don't. Am I next? Yeah. We feel discouraged. So we, um, we can comment about things anytime. Does this feel right to you guys that we're not on either shore, but we're in the water yep. drifting around? Sounds like that. We feel discouraged, bored, and disillusioned. <laughs> At times we feel totally confused and angry. At times we have a powerful urge to go back to where it's safe. But we also have a tremendous longing for a life lived more truly, which we've glimpsed through the fog. Maybe there's a thin sliver of something on the horizon, but maybe not. You're just in the middle of nowhere. What happens if you're willing to be in this sea, in this sense of helplessness? So I have two, a pile of magazines and half of them are Tricycle Magazine, and the other half is the Alumni Journal um, from the place, it's uh, the University of Chicago where I grew up. And there's, there's pictures and little biographies of telling how people are doing. And I was wondering today, I was reading, I keep reading the journal, the, the Alumni Journal instead of the Tricycle Magazine. And something <laughs> keeps drawing to me, and that's like another shore and I see pictures of things in the 60s that I remember and stuff like that. And um, so it's funny to read this and realize that what I'm yearning for is to go back. Ah. I mean, we, we can't go, you can't imagine, it's hard to imagine going forward what that shore is like, right? But your, the previous shore where you've come from, uh, you, you have memories of. I guess I should, maybe I should throw them out. Were you in the middle of reading, Kim? Or were you through with the paragraph? No, no. What happens if you're willing to be in the sea, in the in, in this sense of helplessness? So, so we're in the sea. I guess we could either be willing to be in it or not, right? I'm not sure where she's going with this to tell okay. you that. 
Okay, we'll find you out. Continue. Okay, before you go on, I think it's lovely that you look back at fond memories. Uh, you know, when we read things like this, it makes it sound like, oh, the life we had before was awful. That's why we needed to change. There were some lovely parts of it, but there are other parts that that we're working on that are basically going to transform all of it. You can't, you can't, you know, move the axis of the earth or the sun, well, the earth, you know, a centimeter without creating cosmic change. So I think the way it's written, it sort of leans toward this dichotomous view of where we've been, but there's are lovely things from where we've been and it's okay to look back and be grateful for them. Julie, I think somewhere in the book, she answered this, right? Um, someone asked her about the good memory pop, exactly how you said, Nelda. And mm -hmm. I think she mentioned something as like, you will be cling to it. As like, yeah, it's good, but you compare with the current moment and you don't have it, so you keep going back and kind of like, you crave for it. And so now. what if you don't compare it? What if you look back and say, I'm so grateful I had that. That was so wonderful. And, and, and don't crave it in the present. I don't see any harm in our practice doing that. What do you all think? Um, I don't think so either. But I think maybe more what she's getting at is um, a way of being. Mm -hmm how you have been in your life and, you know, with various reactivities and so forth and to let go of that into where you don't depend on that as you proceed through life, maybe more than just, you know, the pleasant things that happened, that kind of thing. Okay. Maybe you've heard me say this before, but I took this mindfulness workshop at a Vietnamese temple. Um, it was the first intensive I took. And I asked the, the monk, I said, so can you be in the present thinking about the past? And he went on for an hour and basically he said yes, and I don't understand anything he said, but, but you, could, you, have a, you could do it either way. You can like be just completely lost in the past or you could be in the present looking at it. And uh, I think I'm doing the, being in the past, getting lost when I look in this magazine, you know, trying to, to uh, escape to this, this place where I was. Was that a real good time in your life, Kim? Sounds good. Question. I don't know, I, but I have fond memories of it now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, I guess it was both ways, but there was a lot of pain too. Mm -hmm. like with all our childhoods right okay spiritual traditions spiritual traditions tend to emphasize seeing the new land but most of our practice and time is spent drifting in the struggle perhaps just partly what we finally get to see is that being on the shore struggling in the old the open ocean and being in the new land are on the same. There's nowhere to go or food differently. This shore is it. 
out on the desolate ocean is it? The other shore is it? Just simply being at peace with wherever you are. Finally, we know what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and so what is it that she's talking about? The simp that there's simply being at peace with wherever you are. Yeah. But there's no destination. There's only the journey. Mm-hmm. There's there's no end point. All of it is all of it is practice. Every step, every moment. Yeah. It's just of a journey is a journey itself, right? Yeah, journey, journey is what? No, each step of a journey is a journey itself. I say oh. yes, yes. Yeah. Who's so that? I am. So why launch off from the shore in the first place? What is the point if it seems to be untold uncertainty and struggle with no new land to arrive at? Our practice is not to arrive somewhere, but to see that these three places are the same. And by three places, I guess she means past, present, and future. Um, And that we have already arrived. Want me to finish that next part? Sure. Okay, to do this, we need to just be the struggle. There's nothing except being what you are. At some point, we just roll over on our back and float, and nothing's different, and everything's different. Uh, Shanka, do you want to read? Sure. So, Shanka. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, one thing I was going to add to the conversation we were having earlier about the three shores being um, essentially the same is what everybody else also echoed, that the the feeling of lack or the feeling that what is, is not enough and I ought to be somewhere else or in some different state is what creates suffering and like being at ease with like what is right like radical acceptance of what is that's that was my reading of like what it means to be in the shore that is i guess this sublimation sublation i think that's a word of all three shores anyway sounds good thank you 99 tries There was a man who struggled for years. Though he spent 20 years practicing with a renowned teacher, he never quite seemed to deepen his understanding. The teacher just pushed him and pushed him. Try this, okay, try this, Mm, try this. Then one day the man got it. Becoming quite mad, he went to his teacher and said, I cannot believe I did all that struggling for 20 years only to realize that you don't need this struggle. And the teacher said, if I had spared you your struggle, you would have never seen that there's no struggle necessary. You have to work at your practice. Try this and try that and try that. You have to be alert. Watch yourself trying if you want. When the day comes that you see that 
when the day comes that you see that that's all nonsense, fine. But take heed of what the master said. Did we skip yeah. Cody? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry, fine. Cody. I'll read this next one. Uh, okay. Yasutani Roshi used to say that the fact that you hit the bullseye on the 100th attempt doesn't mean that it had nothing to do with the 99 tries. It has a lot to do with the 99 tries. As you engage in that struggle, no matter how you do it, if there is any awareness, then you're maturing. You're changing into what you always were. Okay, I guess it's me. Um, do good. This is the next chapter. The basic vow of practice is to do good. Don't harm, just do good. This doesn't mean to try and do good because that trying is thinking. It means to do good. You can't do good if you're mad at somebody and want to do them in. That's impossible. You can't do good if you're spending most of your time trying to defend yourself from the world. That's also impossible. We get good at what we practice. Sometimes. <laughs> so what do we want to look, get good at? <coughs> look at what kind of life you live and whether your actions are going in that direction. With practice, we can differentiate the strategy of doing good that is dictated by our core belief from the good that flows out of us living our true life. Well, differentiate it from what? With practice, we can differentiate the strategy of doing good that is dictated by our core belief, oh, from the good that flows out of us living our true life. We clarify the difference between a self-centered and a life-centered effort. As you see, you may gain an understanding very slowly over time and without trying to do anything about it that the purpose of your life is just to be yourself. That doesn't mean to be yourself in the ordinary sense. It means to be your true self, a self that does good. Only when there is, only then there is what we call a life of service begin to open up. I don't mean that you aren't of a sudden running around serving people, though it could look like that, but more deeply, the whole feeling of your life changes. And what you care most about is doing no harm to others and repairing any harm that has been done. So before I read, I wanna say, I've always thought the American saying, practice makes perfect is off the mark. It practice makes permanent. Whatever you're practicing becomes embedded in long-term. So maybe, what the saying means is practice makes perfectly awful or perfectly good or perfectly neutral. I don't know, but I don't really use that saying. So the paragraph says, I'm not saying go out and save the world, but he, people who practice regularly do change the world. A good practice changes anyone who comes into contact with it. However, if you think you're gonna run around and change people, 
you'll notice they begin to avoid you. I'll avoid you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like one thing I've also observed is people with the power to truly connect with you are people who come with no ideology of their own, right? Like to look into somebody's eye and to like truly empathize in a way is to like leave, like throw out all the ideology and uh, this is what's gonna work and just be there with them completely without once again, without any beliefs. And yeah, that's, it reminded me of that as well. And only then can you like truly, you know, that's the act of granting subjectivity to the other. And that's also an act of love. So true. Mm -hmm. So I think all of these books boil down to, I thought about it yesterday and I have a Christian background. I think it's very simple. Do good and don't judge. And in, um, encompassed in the umbrella, do good is um, serve the world serve yourself with self-care, follow the precepts, and don't judge is, is what you're uh, talking about. So Shank, it's, it's just sit with someone, whoever they are, as they come, whatever they bring. Yeah. I like the idea of no harm because good has a problem of, so what's good and what's not good. True. But I'm, I suppose harm would have the same problem. <laughs> any, any adjective you put on the table or any noun for that matter is dualistic, right? Like by its very nature. Mm, I yeah. think the good, the good that is being talked about, of course, I, I could say absolute good and then you could say absolute, like is the opposite of relative. But I think the good that is being discussed is not the good that is the opposite of evil or harm, but something that transcends the dualistic notion of good and evil that we ordinarily employ. That's a good point. I, I agree. You've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's reading now? Is it me? Yes, Sasha. Sacrifice. In Zen practice, we spend a lot of time sitting. If we hurt, we sit. If we do not hurt, we sit. We sit long hours. Do you think of those hours of sitting as sacrifice? A student said to me, well, I know you've been very ill and I know you're just sacrificing your life for your students. That surprised me. I don't think of practice as sacrifice. I don't think of teaching or sitting as sacrifice. I think what I'm doing is fun because <laughs> sitting is the same thing as living in practicing and in living with more awareness, all we're sacrificing is our illusions. So you get up early to sit in meditation when you really don't want to. The bed is warm and you just really would like to stay in it and sleep more, some more. <clears throat> but you get up because sitting helps you make your life whole. The practice begins the very second you get up because in that moment, you have enough awareness to see that the sitting in the long run is what you want to do. You aren't losing something by sitting. You are finding your wholeness. 
In Buddhism, there's a concept of the Bodhisattva vow, a commitment to liberate all sentient beings. That's the idea. The reality might be that we'd rather go to the corner and get a hot fudge sundae. If our reality is that we'd rather be elsewhere, then we will likely feel annoyed that we have to give up something in order to be there for someone else. The Bodhisattva vow can be an idealized goal, a head on top of our own head, another excuse to keep us from experiencing our life as it is. A genuine part of us is drawn toward easing suffering. This is great, as long as we don't get caught in the idea of sacrificing ourselves. Sometimes it isn't appropriate to take on someone else's suffering. We'd be better off letting them go through their own pain and learn their own strength. If we define our lives as giving up something, we're always sacrificing. When we live our lives with compassion and awareness, we realize we're actually gaining a lot in our situation. We express an act from compassion for its own sake. And in turn, our life becomes rich and full. Serve yourself. It's easy to save the world in your head. It's no trouble at all to have noble thoughts about this or that way of saving things until we embody this desire and have the felt experience of living it in our daily lives. It's just another strategy, another escape. You may say you vow to save all sentient beings. How many are there? There are millions of them. If you're trying to save all sentient beings, you're trying to fix something, usually in yourself. The only way you can save all sentient beings is to be yourself, your true self. When you are your true self, at least a fair amount of the time, because no one I yet met is there 100% of the time, you begin to be a beneficial presence in the world. Well, that's a great description, isn't it? Yep. Mm -hmm. To be of service is a koan in and of itself. What does it mean to serve yourself, to serve someone else, and to serve a situation? It doesn't mean to be running around straightening everything out and trying to help everyone. Some people wear themselves out serving others. When your health is threatened, when your equilibrium is threatened, it is difficult to truly serve. Serving others includes taking care of yourself. Hmm. Yeah. To be of service sometimes means to be very helpful to someone else. Sometimes it means to give up almost everything you have. And sometimes it means to keep everything you have. A good practice leads to service and to doing the work. That can look very different on different people, but one way you know you're doing this work is that it feels spacious. In a practice sense, if you're not being yourself, you're not being of service. Now, some of you think it's enough to say, I really don't want to serve anybody. That may be honest, but it doesn't have any integrity in it. <clears throat> service and willingness to do the work flows naturally out of a good practice. 
this doesn't mean we work all the time. It means there is less separation between being of service, doing the work, and living our true lives. So how, how about someone like a forest monk or someone who just goes to a cave for seven years? Is that person being of service to others? We would have to redefine service somehow, right? Is it like just act of um, like ordinary altruism, like giving food and money to homeless people that we call service or to be expand service to mean something greater than just that? Sometimes we say it's, it's enough just not doing harm. You know, that, that service. But, but this one um, priest who, who went for, oops, here, here is Baleen. Oh, good. I'm alone. Oh, okay. She's still connecting. Oh, we have a new person joining us. Yeah, yeah she comes often. Maylin. Hi. Good. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. You got so here just in time for the next chapter. <laughs> just in time for the last question. Actually, Kim, uh, what remind me? Uh, actually, your question make me think of about students like me, like. We, those monks need harm to uh, kind of like improve themselves to be enough to serve the world. Like students have to learn, right? So if we count the time that we are in school, it's not serve, uh, serving, then it's not really not that, right? I see. That's a nice analogy. It's like being in school. You're preparing. Yep. I mean, that's essentially what created the ideological divide between the Theravadins and Mayan, the Mayana Buddhist, right? Like one is after obtaining our hardship, do you go out and take the Bodhisattva vow and serve the world? Or do you just, you know, get lost in the um, bliss of emptiness, right? And one side chose, you know, to go and liberate all sentient beings and the other chose something else. And That's a good description. Could you tell us a little of your background? <laughs> um, You're not new to this stuff. Maybe not, but... Where do you live? I'm in Austin right now. I grew up in Nepal. Um, I came to the U.S. for college. I see. Uh, that's all. I like to inquire, I guess. <laughs> but have you been going to a, another Zen center? Or... Not really, um, but I want to be more connected with the community, and that's definitely one of the reasons why I'm here. Oh, great. Well, so great that you're here, and you have yeah, a, like a great start, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice to meet all of you. This is a wonderful community, I can already tell. Uh, welcome. So, so I, I want to speak to my mom's service, and because to me, it might not look like service but my mom was bedridden kim knows the story and i've told it before my mom was bedridden the last three years of her life in in a nursing home and you couldn't get out of bed and spent long long well long days in bed until they 
they usually brought her meals to her and she spent the entire day praying again christian tradition and i think that's one of the most amazing examples of service to do what you can where you are with what you have under your circumstances and she I always thought it was amazing that she spent her entire day starting from those closest to her and spreading that out. I, I see that as service and saying, saving all sentient beings. I, I do. Now you may disagree and you're welcome to, but I just think there's just many faces of service. Okay. I totally agree that your mom was doing service. I think it's um, a bad um, thing that we as a culture apply some kind of utilitarian calculus to acts of service, you know. I think, as you, as you said, no act of compassion, you cannot do this act of compassion is greater than that other act of compassion. Um, any, any form of compassion or, or service is great. So there's, there's your mom, and then there's there's like the uh, Nelda who's putting together bags for the homeless, you know, with the intention of doing service. But there's these guys who are putting a new roof on our house, and I don't think they have um, generosity as their intention. You know, they they're trying to make money so they can, uh, you know, take it home. Or or whatever, or pay off a car. Yeah, but so, that's, that's that's a symptom of the our economy where there is a cash nexus between every transaction and like uh, when it is when a transaction is settled using cash, then like nobody owes anybody anything, and there is no um, idea of service that goes into any transaction. Right? I'm not explaining this well, but I'm just trying to contrast like a financial system that uses the cash nexus versus something that is more a gift-based or service-based economy that is purely hypothetical but but still you could be a roofer and be making your living that way and be aware that you're that this is a good service you offer people they have to have yeah. a roof <laughs> you know yes or, yes and we, we all know of people like that yeah, yeah. yeah. The woman, uh, I mean, we don't have to maybe mention names, but there's, you know, in our lives, we've had all kinds, we've known all kinds of people who did it for money and also had great um, yeah. feelings of generosity with what they did. Mm -hmm. but, when Kim, be, coming from my ethnic background, many of my family, friends, people I grew up around were in the service industry from roofing to whatever. And I love the sound of construction, hammers and saws. I just, to me, it's music because for me in my mind and heart, having known those families, they're making money to support their families here and back home. And if that's not an act of service, I don't know what is. I mean, to me, that's service. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll tell my wife because all day long they've been hammering on the roof. <laughs> Taylor, it's the music of she, she was all ready to cancel her tea lesson and but then the person who she was giving it to wasn't feeling well so they canceled 
It's music. Uh, it's the music of supporting a family. Yeah. <laughs> and so we can hear that either as music, like you're saying, or as obnoxious noise. Right. I've told you the time when there, I thought there was a sound machine in, in the temple. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized it was a pond in the front yard. And so <laughs> my whole feeling about it changed. <laughs> Okay, who's reading now? Am I? I have no idea. Cody? Okay. No, okay. Uh, where do we leave off? Now, Son, some of you, yeah. now, some of you think it's enough to say, I really don't want to serve anybody. <clears throat> that may be honest, but it doesn't have any integrity in it. Service and willingness to do the work flows naturally out of a good practice. That this doesn't mean we work all the time. It means there's less separation, being of service, doing the work, and living our true lives. Oh, I read that already. Oh. Yes, we already read that. So is it Donna's turn? Uh, yes, narrow is the way. Uh, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Matthew chapter seven, verse 14. The other day I was trying to find a tennis match on television and instead bumped into a boxing match. As far as I can tell, the point of boxing is to injure the other person's brain, <laughs> which isn't exactly the greatest thing to do. But still, I found myself drawn to watching. This match was between two extremely skilled boxers. I don't understand boxing particularly, but it was obvious that these guys were good at what they were doing. I watched for a while, fascinated by each punch. There was an immediacy to the contact. We spend the majority of our lives not connecting and we sense there is a connection missing. Maybe that's why I found myself fascinated by the boxing match. It depends uh, it depends everything of it. It depends everything of its participants in a small. Oh, it demands everything of its participants in a small ring, and a and a very short period of time. I was struck by the immediate immediacy, such an immediate experience of pain. This is true for other sports such as football as well. Perhaps that's why people like to watch them to experience that connection. Think of a matador who has to stand there with full attention with that big bull charging around. The bull is amazing, but it's the matador we're fascinated by that he can be so fully present holding ground. The easy way. Students often complain to me. So my wife keeps telling me I'm reading too loud. So I'm going to read softer and you tell me if you can hear me, okay? Because she's uh, ready to leave me if I don't read softer. <laughs> she might have already left, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, easy, the easy way. Students often complain to me I've been practicing for a while now, labeling my thought, 
and once in a while I do something I think is experiencing. But actually, I don't feel any better. So what's the point of all this hard work? This is quite an understandable question. We all want results. We think that practice will give us the connection that's missing in our lives. We do it because we think it's supposed to give us wonderful things. Say you wanted to become a great pianist like Arthur Rubinstein. You have this ambition so for a year. You read on the books on how to play and on the lives of the great masters. You learn the history of music. You listen to great pianists play. You study horn, but you don't go near the piano. And then after a year, you wonder why you aren't a brilliant pianist. <laughs> It's amazing how we approach Zen practice the same way. We all want to be Arthur Rubenstein. We don't want to be the person who can bang out a little tune. But even just to bang out a little tune is not easy. The desire for this big thing overrides our doing the hard work. The easy way is to dream, to think, to look at the pictures, and to read the books. So are we, um, just a normal question, analyzing, um, you know, getting to the other shore inside double quotes uh, with, you know, learning an instrument? Because I don't know if I feel too keen about that. <laughs> they don't, they don't, they don't feel similar to me. Do they to use Sashank? I mean, I wouldn't think, I, if you were to ask me personally, I wouldn't analyze it that way, but I'm just wondering out aloud if that's um, being done here, probably not. I really don't know. I mean, I wonder if we read on if uh, we'll mm, yeah. get a better picture of that. Wait, yeah. I, I'm not understanding the question. Well, my question, uh, Kim, is um, are we analyzing, I hope that's how you pronounce it, are we analyzing, um, you know, getting to the other shore, uh, as in, you know, getting enlightened <laughs> um, with, like perfecting an instrument or, you know, practicing the instrument versus like practicing is meditating. Are we putting them on the same ground is my question. I bet not. <laughs> yeah, I bet not as well. I, I bet not as well. And we can probably, we should probably finish the chapter before. No, that's about. fine. That's fine. No, that's fine to talk. Yeah. Uh, Donna shaking her head. No. Donna says no. I would say no as well. Um, yeah, I, these are these are individual Dharma talks that just happen to be in one section. Um, so I don't know how much we can pull, you know, what what was several pages back, you know, as a as a part of what she the thought that she's developing in this particular one. Sorry. Actually, I think the two ideas are not in the same section. They in the same chapter, wonder, but they are not in the same section. Right. Yeah. So I sent Kim what I thought was a marvelous um, podcast by Tara Brock. 
And what she did for me, and, and what I've seen that after reading all these books about different methods of meditating, that I realized is that um, the methods are different options we have to calm ourselves, to settle ourselves. And it's not that one is better than the other. In fact, Peg mentioned the other day, that's why you need to get with a teacher to figure out which method is yeah. best for you, given your situation. But really our attachment to any one method for too long, other than settling, is just another attachment. And so once we settle, then the purpose is, so once we learn to play the instrument, then the purpose is to, to live that experience, to you know, get settled enough. Uh, Tara Brock said, it's funny, we're not supposed to try to, you know, push to get somewhere, but we've got to settle enough and learn techniques enough to settle so that we can get to a state where, where we can arrive where we want to go. And so, you know, it's ironic in a sense. Um, and so that's how these two things sound to me, that, that the practicing the instrument is practicing the different ways that we settle and even what are they called the, the rituals what do we call them in zen the forms. forms forms the forms yes even the forms practicing all of that so that we become so acclimated in our quote true self that then it flows and then that is that is the um the journey, the, the before, middle, and and, de and after. That, that's, that's how I see it. Yes, many expedients to the same destination, if you will. And like you said, you know, not being attached to one expedient. And I think it's uh, in Majjima Nikaya that the Buddha says as well, you know, that probably a lot of us are familiar with the simile of the raft, right? Like, using the raft to cross the river and abandoning the raft, or as the Buddha said, abandoning, abandoning the teachings. And he knew that was a controversial thing to say, but like not being attached to the teachings because the teachings could of course not encapsulate what they're pointing to. Oh, we're so glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how many of us have abandoned the raft? <laughs> every day <laughs> every day you know in a sense me not um, throwing out these magazines is, <laughs> is, is, is holding on to those magazines your tricycle magazines or your oh the other ones the other one no. I can't get to the tricycles because the others are in front <laughs> <laughs> am I reading okay. the next paragraph Julie, I for, uh, um, we forgot um, Milen. Yeah. Milen, do you want to read? No, thank you. I will just listen. Okay. okay. <clears throat> it's amazing how we approach Zen practice the same way. We all, did you already read that? No. We all want to be Arthur Rubinstein. We don't. I think we read that, didn't we? We read that, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we did. We did, yeah. 
playing a sport. Isn't that where yeah. we are? That's where we are. Playing a sport. Playing a sport or an instrument extremely well is not just thoughts, ideas, and theories. It's embodied. And until our true self is embodied almost constantly, we will not have our true life, the one we really want. There are ways that we're all boxing, though it doesn't usually look like opening up somebody's face with a good uppercut. We're in the boxing ring of life with our partners, our jobs, our circumstances. Most of the time, we're actually not in the ring. We've wandered over by the wall and are shadow boxing. In boxing, you're trying to jab the other person in the head. Shadow boxing is just jabbing a shadow with no real contact. And most of our thinking is shadow boxing. Part of it waking up to, to the present moment is to become aware of the fact that usually we're just shadow boxing and not making contact with life. We don't want to think that everything we do all day long is, is the way and therefore deserves our true attention, our true contact. We want the easy way. This is just the nature of being human. If I were to take every problem that people bring me hundreds of questions and problems every week. They all boil down to the same problem. I want the easy way. <laughs> it doesn't help to say we're going to take the hard way. That's useless. We still, don't, uh, we still don't take the hard way. We take the easy way. The way to begin is to see through what the easy way is which of our behaviors, belief systems, and actions are the easy way. We rarely know the answer here because the heart of the easy way is not to pay attention. Hmm. We all have our pseudo ways of paying attention. We do this by trying to fix people outside our, by, by trying to fix people outside ourselves. We project everything onto the outside world so that in some way, somebody else is responsible for this mess. Perhaps we start practicing with the hope that we'll become less irritable or more immune <clears throat> to difficulties. We, um, what do you guys think about the pseudo ways of paying attention thing? or this dichotomy she's creating between an easy way and hard way and um, is the easy way just, you know, us operating on a default mode, whatever that means. I'm not trying to explain it yet. And what is the opposite of the easy way that she's trying to prod us, not just towards? Well, I think she's saying, I was thinking she was saying the easy way is to like blame other people for this beat yourself up for that, you know, that kind of thing, rather than taking true responsibility, something like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, when you don't pay attention, then you don't see the consequences of your actions. So she says the heart of the easy way is not to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I think also going with the title of the book uh, to add to what you guys are saying and this word attention, which means a lot to me as well, my personal practice, it's um, 
I think at least my default mode of engagement with the world is immediately, you know, I, I see something of this is a pencil, right? Like this word pencil is screaming in my head, but it's not really a pencil, right? It's mysterious. It's, it's <laughs> I don't even know what, what to say about it. Like, and everything in the world is like that, but we're so immediate, quick to dismiss, you know, we see a bird out of the window and we say, oh, it's just a bird, but it's so much more magical and, you know, ineffable for the lack of a better word. And everything in the world is in the same level and we fail to see it in that level of perception. And I think this paying attention conjures me, you know, conjures in my head those things. Yeah, and like you say, that's the title of the book, Ordinary Wonder. <laughs> so Sashank, how long have you been in Austin? <laughs> Two weeks. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the reason I asked for some purpose is because that's a that is a, a lovely perspective that that many people who don't practice just don't get, don't understand that that understanding of all that is, right? Which makes um, sometimes living in this, you know, in, in, in this world, a challenge. Um, I love that here we all seem to speak the same language, although even that's in question sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but being here two weeks is your experience that you, that you sense that same orientation to life from those around you? Or is it the way I see most of us distracted yeah. and rushing and anxious and angry and reactive? And certainly, certainly the same appraisal, right? I think most of us, uh, and we would probably have different things to blame, but I think most, most of us are uh, alienated and anxious and just putting on a show and going through the emotions and just hollow and deeply lonely. <laughs> and it manifests outwardly in you know the things you said, uh, anxiety and irritation and whatnot. <laughs> what are you studying? It are you at UT? No, uh, I would love to be in UT. Maybe I make some friends. But <laughs> uh, I am not doing much right now. Um, I used to be a student. I went to a small rural school in Vermont. But that's a long time ago. I see. What was the school? Bennington College. Oh, of course. I know Bennington. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Excellent school. Yeah. yeah. It's a tiny school, yeah. It's a nice school. Uh, is it my turn? I don't know. I'll read. <laughs> Glittering images. The gate is narrow, but... On the other side is the immediacy and juiciness of true life. We all have glittering images of the way we were, with the way we are, the way we think we should be, the way other people should be, and the way our life should be. Our true self is always blocked by our glittering images. It's very common with people who do any kind of practice to have a glittering image of themselves. It's fine to do a lot of things and to do them well, but it's very easy to make them into part of our glittering image of ourselves. 
we have to pay attention that we don't turn our skill into the easy way. You have to do the work of inspecting who it is that thinks they're performing the skill. Those must of frozen emotions are these. Who is the doer? It's so powerful. Um, <laughs> yes. Powerful. Nilda, uh, you are muted. Oh, I was just waiting to see if someone was going to comment. Thank you, Nancy. Um, when we undertake an activity without attention, whether it's sitting practice, sports, piano, or anything, then it becomes the easy way. If you get good at something, you can add it to your glittering image collection. Perhaps you think, well, I'm not so bad after all, I can do this. The core belief is as strong as ever. Hmm. I think it's, if we can, I think we should talk a little bit about this. I think it's, a, to me, it's a, those were two very powerful um, paragraphs, especially the, the thing about doership and this glittering, um, how did she put it? Like I was, the, the thing that I was thinking is this feeling of doership is what, um, at least in my experience, gives birth to pride. Um, you know, I am the doer of my actions. Of course, now the immediate question is, oh, what about personal responsibility? But uh, the, the fact that, you know, the, the fact that we perceive the world from this locus, you know, all things happen to me. And uh, essentially, like, we are the center of everything that happens, right? And we identifying with that center is probably the feeling of doership that she's talking about. Uh, do you mind going back to, going back one piece? There was one thing that I wanted to highlight with all of you. Um, oh yeah, it's very common with people who do any kind of practice to have a glittering image of themselves. Um, I've certainly been a victim of this and um, whenever, you know, one gets asked the question, uh, like, what are you, who are you, uh, what do you do? And you are like suddenly put into a podium where you have to, you know, weave together a story about yourself. And it's very easy to create or to, to paint a glittering image of oneself. Um, and I do that more than I, I like to admit. Um, and my question, or I would love to hear what you guys, how you keep those, um, you know, tendencies at check. And whenever you narrate a story about yourself, because I find it very, str I struggle a lot with it when I have to speak about myself, because I find myself living life almost, you know, that there are a lot of things that are just happening. And when I have to speak about it, then it's all of a sudden I have to weave together a narrative out of those seemingly unrelated but of course very related events and uh, it's it's very difficult without glittering uh, everything that I'm saying so what is your guys experience uh, well, I, when you I, yeah, I think I think what we keep talking about uh, is uh, that the first step is realizing that you're doing it you know, as opposed to not to just doing it and not realizing it 
So, sure. so, so you become more aware and then gradually you like, you know, what my wife made me aware is that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm talking louder than I need to be talking. And, th and then, so I keep remembering and remembering, am I talking louder? Am I talking louder? You know, and, and maybe I'll, I'll think of it after I've read, but then maybe someday I'll think of it as I'm reading or before I'm reading or, you know, and then maybe it, like uh, Nelda's talking about, it will just become an embodied practice of speaking, not realizing I, I have to scream. I'm like the old, you know, the old lady on the phone. He screams into the phone. So, so Kim, to you, does it like a glittering image of oneself mean like not being aware, not being self-aware enough? Yeah. So, so step one is you're you're completely blind to what you're doing, and then step two is you're you're still doing it, but you're aware of it, and then step three is you start to change. Hmm. I'll use Kim as an example. Do you mind, Kim? It's no, I, I, I I've already been injured, so it's okay. <laughs> well, you can't first, hurt me anymore. So, so first of all, and this is not the example. I could not tell the difference between when you were reading loudly in your opinion and reading softly in your. <laughs> no. So, just want to point that out. Okay. But, but in terms of practice. Kim has been a good model for me in so many ways because I see the labels that people put on him that are, that are quite true, in my opinion. He doesn't attach to them. Kim just keeps being Kim and doing what Kim's going to do in his practice. And if you were, and you, if you say to Kim, oh, you're so kind, you're so talented, oh, we couldn't do without you, he doesn't he doesn't take those on as his robe. You know, he just, he doesn't even, re, you don't even respond sometimes. You just keep going. Doesn't even hear it. Doesn't even <laughs> hear it. And so, and in seeing from the outside, seeing his actions from the outside, I can see that those are kind acts, that he, that he is engaging in his practice in a very committed way. But as far as, the glittering images, he doesn't let those attach to him, in my experience. Well, thank you. But thank you. Thank you. No, yeah. I, I had to do that earlier today. Someone gave me a really, really good compliment that just shook me. This was a student of like 40 years ago. Wow. And, and it just really shook me. But then I remember this teacher giving us a, uh, a sermon on... He's a, a painting teacher on uh, how when someone compliments you, you simply have to say thank you. And you don't say, oh, it was nothing. You know, it was, e <laughs> it was, it was easy. I didn't spend a lot of time on it or it was. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, yeah, but, you yeah, know, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on, go on. I just, oh, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to say I'm in a different time zone and I'm going to have to call it quits, but I've really enjoyed the evening with everybody. Okay, well, say goodbye to Joko back because this is it. I know, I'll have to read those last couple of pages later. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Okay, so we should go on. How many pages are left? 
two and a oh, half. Good, good. We'll make it. We'll make it. We'll make it. Yay. Where are we? It's are we at it's very common? Or did I do I have to turn the page? No, I, I think we're there. Oh, okay. Okay, and who's reading? I don't know. I think it's yeah, I think no doubt. Oh, is it my turn? All right. It's very common with people who do anything. No, no, no. I mean you already finished. Yeah, it's probably my turn. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I just finish? <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> okay. It's all good. It's very common with people who do any kind of prayer. Oh, we already did this. No, that already done the next one. Yeah, when we undertake. When we undertake an activity with that attention, whether it's sitting practice, sports, <laughs> piano, or anything. No, sorry, that already done. Now that I read that, the, the last. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. That. I did read that. <laughs> yeah. Sitting can very well become the easy way. Zen practice and sitting can be the biggest escape. There is, if you stop paying attention, you have to reach some maturity in yourself so you can be aware if this happens. A teacher can help. I can do that. A particular human ideal is to have the easy way, but to dress it up as being very difficult. When we dress up our strategies that way, they become particularly lethal because other people tend to look up to us. They think we really know something and that reinforces our own belief that we do too. That's my, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was just gonna make a comment about that must be one of the predicaments of, uh, you know, putting the robes on as a monk that, you know, all of a sudden people start looking up to you and then it's very easy for that to get into your head and they think that oh, you are something now. And, of course, that's like an account of many people who have put the robes on, but just wanted to echo that. Yeah, I'm sure it's a real challenge, you know, just like getting a college degree or getting a high school <laughs> yeah. degree or any of it. You know. talk about, yeah. But they say you're, you're ready when, you know, when you can do it without it going to your head, all these things. Okay, ordinary wonder. A lot of people who practice begin to feel a little freedom. This is probably the best way to describe a life that is less and less caught by self-centered, by a self-centered, I mean, by self-centered attachments. It's free, it's, flex, it's also flexible, it's kind, and it's fun. We forget about fun. A life without fun is miserable. You know, instinctively, when you meet a person who has a little bit of freedom, there's just something different about them. As your core belief fades, fixed thoughts, ideals, and glittering images are no longer running your life. And when they fade, things go better. Life gets a little clearer, a little more spacious. I don't mean you're always happy but there's a fundamental rightness to your life that begins to appear. Uh, I think you're talking to Okay. Practice is the slow effacement, usually over many, many years, of this false master <laughs> called the core belief. You efface the fixed picture of how you should be. And when you efface it, 
you don't replace it with another fixed picture called enlightenment. I want to see um, how they define a face. The words are effaced by the frost and the rain. His anger was effaced. That's not good. Erase. Oh, erase. One thing taking the place of another. Okay. You don't replace it with another fixed picture called enlightenment. Next. Through practice, we begin to see through the rigid views we had up of the world. It's not like we suddenly wake up from a dream, though there are moments of that, but usually it's just fan effacement going on on the time. And as we wear away the picture, life becomes more real, more fluid. We in life, flowing along with it, it's almost impossible to foot into words. Uh, you are muted, Nilda. Uh, did I unmute? Yep. You are unmuted. We're tempted to focus on what we imagine enlightenment is rather than to experience living with a little more fluidity and freedom. It's the image of enlightenment that's the problem. True enlightenment, since it can't even be talked about, is not a thing. We don't need to worry about it. You cannot imagine the freedom to be a true self. It's an absence and you can't pick up an absence. You can only slowly just get to be that way. The longer we practice, the more, the more we have a clue about how to slowly become free. Freedom is the name of the game, freedom to be nothing. It does not mean that you vanish or that you do not enjoy a good meal. It's not some spooky thing. It's an ordinary wonder. Hmm. Afterward. Oh, that's the end. Or oh, afterward? No, we have afterward. Are you reading that? Okay. It's only a few pages. Yeah, Kim. Oh, there's an, I'm sorry. Thanks for keeping us on track, Cody. This is her daughter. Afterward. I assume. Yeah. <laughs> By Brenda Beck Hess. For many of us, our lives are filled with challenges and hardships. We suffer. Charlotte Joko Beck's life was also just like this, albeit with her particular circumstances. Suffering drove her on a relentless quest to make sense of, of the pain and cruelty she found in her life and to find peace. Finally, this search took her to Zen practice. As brought, as brought, to, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. As brought to Westerners from Japan, Zen practice could seem quite austere and inaccessible with its Japanese terminology, concepts like Satori or enlightenment often seemed incomprehensible. The esoteric and existential puzzles from the lives of ancient Zen figures felt remote, more like an exotic lifestyle or a mystical adornment than an embodied immediate practice. Uh, 
Joko's gift was to speak about practice with her students in a way that stripped away many of the trappings of the religion. Her teachings were practical and precise, applicable, applicable to each of us in our daily lives. She felt the ordinary stuff of our lives, relationships, work, financial problems, were the wonderful fodder for our practice. She never wavered, though, from the importance of daily meditation practice as a way to develop our strength of practice. <coughs> to have a quiet space with which to reveal the habitual patterns and beliefs that run our lives. Ultimately, sitting quietly allows us the space to experience the pain usually hidden within all this. What's the noise? What noise? What noise? <laughs> now it's gone. <laughs> the alien spaceship hovering in the sky. <laughs> Maybe. Ordinary wonder is one of the products of, of this teaching, clearly outlining the path we must walk with commitment and persistence. What is most clear from Yoko's writings is that this path is extraordinarily simple. This does not mean it is easy to walk this path. Indeed, it requires everything we have. However, by actually doing this practice, Yoko shows that each of us has the ability to increase the freedom and peace in our lives, to learn ultimately what this nothing called enlightenment is. What this no thing called enlightenment is, that it's not right? Nancy? Yes. N no um, thing. No thing. Oh, nothing. Well, what did I read? I mean, what well, did I not, read? It's not nothing. Oh, okay. It's no <laughs> Thank no you thing. For it's not a thing, which she said. Uh, yeah. Oh, what is nothing? Oh, I see. I have a question. Yes. So what kind of, uh, what kind of teacher was Joko? Was she a Zen teacher? Or other kind of teacher? She was a Zen teacher, but she was also trained in Rinzai uh, tradition. Um, I, there's a movie on Joko that um, I can share. I'll sh who, some of us have already seen it. Who would like to have? And also, um, uh, Shashank. Uh, do you want to give me your, if you give me your email address, I can add you to the Appamata uh, Google group. Yeah, or, yeah. I was going to ask anyway that how do you guys talk to each other outside of this meeting? Uh, yeah. I will tell me your email. Uh, that's probably quicker. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I, I have to leave. Thank you very much. Thank okay. You. And bye. Take bye. care of yourself. Okay. I know you've had a hard time. Good to see you. Yeah, you can put it in the chat, Sashank, and, and then well, I'm putting I'm putting mine in the chat. And then if you email me, I'll put you on the Google uh, group. And also yeah. I'll I'll send you a movie, uh, a link to a movie on Joko Beck. Does anyone else want it who hasn't seen it? Yeah, you can okay, send it to me too, yeah. Nelda and Cody. I think I received it before. Okay. 
Great. And then next week we start on the new book. And our yeah, teacher. Uh, oh, geez. <laughs> uh, I'll send you. Yeah, that's fine. I'll send you. Oh, there it is. Look, Nelda's holding yeah. it up. The light that shines through eternity. Infinity. 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 Okay. Will Pat join us this time? What did he say, Nancy? I don't know. Kim, uh, will Pat join us uh, next week? Peggy's going to join us when she can, so I don't know on any particular date, if she's going to be there or not. Um, but I'm I trust that she'll probably be there at least for the first one, as well as for others. Uh, but we will, we will proceed. It's a really, really beautiful book. Mm -hmm. uh, Do you guys meet, sorry, I'm just asking a lot of beginner questions. Uh, do you guys meet like once every week on Mondays or? Yes, yes, for many, many years. And then we have many other meetings throughout the week that you'll see oh, on the, the Appomattox calendar. Did you join through Meetup? Yes, the last minute, actually. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, no problem. That's it's great to have you. And was uh, Nepal where was where Buddha was supposedly from, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How far from where you grew up? Um, two hours or so. Oh, that's so great. And <laughs> uh, um, so did you ever go to the place where he was supposedly from? Yes. Uh, my dad was stationed there for a while. So, yeah, I, I've been there. <laughs> that's, that's really great. And Please. yeah, so is there very much... Uh, so we understand that Buddhism has mostly left India. Yes, during the you know, Gupta Empire, there was a whole, I don't know how much you know the history, but yeah, it is, it has morphed into something completely different, if not completely gone from the Indian, from India and even Nepal. But it's more practiced in Nepal than in India, like, but it has fused with, Buddhism was preserved a lot in Tibet, because of you know geographic reasons and then it merged with like hinduism and then and this new sect of buddhism tibetan buddhism plus hinduism gave birth to Neowari buddhism so that's the prevalent uh, mode of buddhism in nepal but it's more esoteric and yeah it's its own thing is it more where uh people are either monks or they don't practice at all yes <laughs> Yes, and even people who are, yes, yeah. Sashank, if you will go to apamada.org. Yeah, I will, definitely. And then hit calendar, and then main calendar. We have lots of different meetings, but I'm just going to put a plug in for one of our other teachers. We have um, two primary teachers who, who formed Apamada, and now mm -hmm. we have three entrusted teachers, but on Tuesdays at 1230, mm. uh, Flint, he now lives in Hawaii, 
does a depth in practice or does he call it inquiry? What's inquiry? Inquiry. It's amazing. I, I mean, I just have to tell you, I come away every single time so filled with, so expanded by not only the short talk he gives, but the sharing that others have. That's at yeah. 12.30. So that's tomorrow, 12.30. And then we, we meet afterwards and talk about it for a half an hour, those who want to. On, on Tuesdays as well. On Tuesdays, yeah, yeah. So it's 12.30 to 1.30. I don't know if you're free during the day. I should be, although I think I have a dentist tomorrow, but uh, usually. I, but, and he has quite a following around the world in places, um, you know, from uh, Europe to Wisconsin to all over Mexico. Berlin to. <laughs> uh, so about 50 to 75 people come to the inquiry. And uh, they're also on YouTube and SoundCloud, uh, you know, many recordings, over a thousand. So uh, he was one of the uh, founding members? Of- he, he, he what? Yes, he was. Yes. <laughs> I see. And he like- received transmission from Peg. Well, he is, he is, it's happening now. Oh, it's happening now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's so great reading uh, the book with everyone. I have to leave now. Okay, goodbye, Nancy. Take care, Nancy. Are you going to go to a doctor or have you been going? Yeah, maybe I have to to go again to see what's going on. Yeah, to make sure you don't have an infection. Yeah, thank you, Kim. Okay. Take care of yourself. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, good night. What a treat for you to join us. What did you study at, at Bennington? A uh, little bit of everything. Um, I took a little bit of everything. I didn't have a declared concentration. My college does not require you to have a major or concentration. But I took a lot of uh, math classes as well and a couple of classes in social sciences, humanities, a little bit of music. Uh, so a little bit of everything, but I think I'm mostly an autodidact. So I just like to learn things on my own and just, you know, a very question driven learning than a discipline driven learning. Uh, and it seemed to me that do you said a student from 40 years ago. So are you, do you teach as well or? I'm, I'm what is called a Zen mentor. So there's about five of us. There's, there's, two senior teachers, three entrusted teachers, and then five of us who are Zen mentors. Ah, oh, so you're one of the mentors, nice. Yeah, yeah. so, so uh, anyway, a very important part of, of Apamata and Buddhism in, in general is the Sangha, practicing together. Oh my God, yeah. And, and this is a very relational practice, Apamata, probably more than any other place I know of. So it's this connection between people that we, that really uh, is fostered. This is really um, important to me as well, uh, Kim, and I'm so glad you mentioned it. Like, uh, 
if people ask me to name, you know, one significant event in my life, it's just one where I had, you know, the great, I call it the great death of ambition. And the only ambition that I like to actively nurture now is just fostering this, you know, connection between people. And um, that's my jam. And I'm so glad, like, I very accidentally stumbled into you guys. And well, that's, that's so exactly neat. what I was looking for. And There's a nice story where, where Ananda comes to Buddha and says, I think I understand spiritual friendship is 50% of the practice. And Buddha says, no, 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 it's 100%. <laughs> yeah it's one of the three jewels for the reason yes so it's it's not a, a matter of um well you talked about the Theravadan and Mayana difference and it really is this this uh connection between people and i i think you'll really uh like flint tomorrow if you can hear you know go there and also seeing his connection with these 50 or 75 people yeah so he'll he'll give a little talk and then people can come up one at a time and you're welcome to do that and talk yeah. with him that's that's beautiful um, yeah okay um uh, yeah i i look forward to i mean even if i cannot do tomorrow but Oh, uh, you know, okay. Being more active in the community, having the disappointment. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but you can even go online to the teaching page and you can click on links and actually get to our YouTube and our SoundCloud. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I look forward to exploring your website That's and what's in there. Um, okay. I was, um, you go asked on. me, yeah. Uh, Oh, sorry. Um, you asked me how I know a lot about these things. Uh, and I, I feel like I did not quite answer it faithfully because th there were a lot of people and I didn't want to take up time. But it's, one is more self-directed uh, practice and learning. But second, I was also in, I don't know if you know, the city of 10,000 Buddhas in Ukiah, California, Northern California. It's There's a place called City of 10,000 Buddhas. And there's a small university with only 30 people amazing amazing place it's called dharma realm buddhist university um i was there for a couple of months uh, just um i guess meditating and learning with people uh, in a more rigorous academic way but uh i could go on and on about my experience there but it's it that's not really important um but I, I guess, you know, more self-directed learning plus more accelerated learning during that time is how um, I've come to know a lot of like vocabulary in this, in this domain, but all of that doesn't matter in the end. It's, it's not about any of that, so. Well, I look forward to seeing you in the future. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. And uh, it's, it's, once again, feeling very lucky that I'm doing this. Oh, okay. All right, Take Kim. care. Bye. Yeah, you too. Nice meeting you.